All right, now, you remember blue book tests? Anybody ever take a blue book test? I don't know what the reason was for that. Um, um, the, the whole blue book thing. Because on top of the pain of taking a test, you have to go buy a blue book to, to write it in. I, but I took a few of those in seminary. I took a few of those in college. I may have taken one or two in high school even. But um, today is kind of our midterm exam on Colossians. We're almost halfway through. We're going to start with 216 today. By the, by the end of today, we'll kind of be there. Um, uh, you know, I always kind of liked... Um, kind of in, enjoyed that deal when we'd get to the final exam or toward the final exam and a student would say to me, uh, okay, so I looked at my grade. That means I don't have to take the final, right? And I'd say, uh, wrong again. <laughs> in fact, I would say, I would think something like, did your mother drop you on your head when you were a baby? But I didn't say that. I, it just went through my head. Uh, because that's part of the experience. Evidently, in somebody's class, they didn't have to take the final if they had an A or if they had a grade that they wanted. Uh, not so in my class. But um, anyway, I, so we're going to kind of deal a little bit. Now, we, let, let me remind you of a couple of things. Paul, Paul didn't begin the Colossians church, but a fellow servant of his, a, a friend of his by the name of Epaphras, that we believe, according to what we read in the book of Philemon, it was in um, prison with Paul at one time. Um, Epaphras was led to faith. Epaphras goes back home to Colossae, starts a church, comes back to visit Paul in Rome in prison to say to him, I want you to know what's going on in my hometown. Um, there, there's some marvelous things going on. So Paul writes back to them, whom he's never met, sends the letter by Epaphras, and that's what we get to read here. Now, the, we've chosen as kind of a key verse, uh, 1.28, Colossians 1.28, He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's uh, chapter 1, verse 28. So today, the main idea of this little midterm that we're going to do is our relationship with God is built on faith in Jesus Christ only. However, over time, many of us begin to rely on rules and rituals and personal opinions as the foundation of faith. So Paul is going to say it's imperative that we stay focused on Christ only, Christ alone, as the author and perfecter of our faith. So we'll start there kind of today and, and we'll kind of deal with this. Now, um, um, Brother Blair, can I get you to read, if I'm doing my math right, eight verses, verse 16 down to the end of the chapter. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink <laughs> or regard to a religious festival, the new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen, and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God continues, causes it to grow. 
since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. <clears throat> These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Thank you, Steve. Um, so we're going to ask four questions today that we're going to attempt to kind of answer. One of them only you can answer. But all of them are kind of self-evaluation questions. Are you reliant on rules and rituals? He's going to begin. Verse 16 and kind of if you jump down to 21, you see kind of this idea of don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. By some religious festival or by some uh, celebration or even Sabbath day, he says. Um, so there is something that's very appealing about rules and rituals that tends to draw us in. Um, uh, it's interesting that as much as we kind of complain about rules and rituals, uh, in some ways we embrace them and sometimes we kind of love that. So um, um, it's not entirely clear who was in influencing the, these new Colossian believers. We think that they were less influenced by uh, Jewishness. Now, you would read some of this and think he's talking about Jewish festivals and, and Jewish, the Jewish Sabbath and, and uh, dietary laws and all that. But the truth is that this was a Greek congregation. This was a Greek-cultured congregation in Asia Minor. And, and the idea here is that um, uh, they may have been influenced by, uh, we think, um, a lot of scholars believe that they may have been influenced by kind of a hyper-spiritual, hyper-intellectual group called the Gnostics. The Gnostics believed that all matter was evil. And so they had one of two approaches to things that you could see and taste and touch and feel. Either, since matter didn't, didn't matter, um, sorry, uh, since matter didn't matter, then it didn't matter what you ate or what you did or what you even did with your body. Okay, that was one group, kind of a hyper-liberal group, kind of a uh, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we must die, we, we will die kind of group. The other group took an absolutely 180-degree view of it and said, since matter is evil, then stay away from it. So they uh, had a highly ascetic lifestyle and um, um, uh, lots of laws about what you're to eat and what you're to to drink and all those kinds of things, what you're to do with your body. Uh, isn't it interesting that they could reach the same conclusion and come to a completely opposite uh, approach to it? Well, and then we know that Jewish people had a little issue with, um, with dietary regulations. You remember it wasn't too far into the book of Acts that... Um, that um, the Apostle Peter even had to have a sheet let down from heaven to remind him that it was okay for him to eat a bacon and tomato sandwich. You remember that? I think that's in there somewhere. That's probably in the Living Bible. You know, I mean, that, you think? That might be in Eugene Peterson, but I, I'm not sure. But anyway, that if 
from the RSV, the revised Seton version of that one. But no, you remember that, that whole deal was, Lord, I'm not going to eat anything filthy. And, and God said, don't you tell, make something filthy that I said is not. And the larger issue was downstairs. He was up on the roof having a dream downstairs. There was a house full of Gentile people with their mouths wide open looking to hear the gospel and experience the Holy Spirit. He almost missed that over dietary regulation. So um, uh, kind of the issue here is some issues matter, some don't. Uh, Now, I'm going to tread carefully here. I'll try to. But for instance, and I'm going to speak on closer to my side of the issue than the other side uh, since I can relate to it. Some folks in a Christian, or at least formerly Christian nation, tend to mix patriotism or nationalism, which can be a good thing, with their faith. And uh, sometimes have a little trouble keeping the two uh, separate. But the truth is, we're only a Christian nation to the extent that you follow Jesus, and I follow Jesus, and they follow Jesus. So, you know what I mean? I I think we've just got to be kind of careful there. So what are some of the odd rules and rituals that we find in many churches today? I want to I back up to 1980. You ready? I had just arrived at the First Church of God in Ashland, Kentucky. Now, Jake was born in Ashland. Heather was less than a year old. All right? I'd just gotten there. And on the first Sunday, I had been there for kind of a candidating weekend. And on the first Sunday I was there... The pastor, the senior pastor, asked me to pray the pastoral prayer. So in those days, there was that, okay? In some places, there is still that. And it was kind of in the middle of the service, you do a pastoral prayer. Well, the culture at the First Church of God in National Kentucky was such that, um, that they did the same outline every week. Uh, they knew it wasn't necessarily holy or, or Biblical, but they did it there. And I had the audacity on my first Sunday there to mix that up a little bit. Okay, I planned the bulletin for that day because I was the worship leader and the, and the choir director and all that stuff. And so what they did every Sunday, every Sunday, was when the pastor prayed the pastoral prayer, the ushers came forward to take the offering. So the, the offering always followed the pastoral prayer, always. You didn't do it any other way. Well, it was not set up that way. In fact, I had a choir thing going on right after prayer or something. But I'm I'm standing at the pulpit um, in the front of this platform praying the pastoral prayer. And, okay, so don't judge me, but I opened my eyes for a second, you know, because I heard something kind of rustling in front of me. And uh, it was 1980, okay, so you'll get this. So lined up in front of me were like 12 pairs of of white patent leather shoes. All these ushers um, who were in those days wearing, you know, leisure suits and white patent leather shoes. So, uh, and I thought, what are these guys doing up here? I I somehow made it through the prayer, but I realized very quickly that I was going to have to either, either bow to the culture and never change it up or change it carefully, and I change it a little bit carefully. I'm just not a guy that's going to do the same thing the same way every week, all right? But there was a ritual there that I didn't know anything about, 
By the way, these, some of these people watch this. They're probably, gonna, they're probably giggling right now because they never knew that I did that. But um, um, So i got to figure out here, Paul says, what I'm following that's merely ritual and not Jesus. Are you reliant on rules and rituals? Or, number two, are you reliant on personal experience and opinions. All right? Uh, look at 2.18. Don't let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person also goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up about idle notions about, by their unspiritual mind. Now, here he probably is referring to this hyper-spiritual group who part of their worship was the study of the worship of fascination with angels. I, I began to think about this, and I'm probably calling this wrong because I looked back at it in my, in my quiet time this morning, and I'm not sure I got it exactly right, but I think I got it mostly right. You remember Joshua's angel? You remember right before they took Jericho, Joshua encounters a mighty man of God in the wilderness while they're waiting, and Joshua bows on his face, either there or in another place. The angel says, hey, time out, partner. Don't worship me. You remember that? They were still doing this. This hyper-spiritual group is still doing this. So what i got to deal with here is Paul uses language that refers to these kind of mystery religions that were being um, taught and kind of some odd beliefs. It's bad enough that they had wandered away from the genuine pure faith in Christ, but they got puffed up about it. All right? They wanted everybody to know that they were right, and they wanted everybody to know it. They pretended to be really pious, really religious, but they're actually kind of a mess. Um, we do some, we do some uh, uh, teaching in uh, uh, giant worldwide tools where, where I am. We teach students and we use them in our classes. And one of the things that we uh, look at is how competent you actually are. And sometimes, let's be honest, we real, I have to realize that not only am I incompetent, but I don't know I'm incompetent. I'm unconsciously incompetent. I think I'm right when I'm wrong. Occasionally in my office, I will say, sorry, girls, I was wrong. This is only the second time I've been wrong. <laughs> the last time I was wrong was the time when I thought I was wrong, but I was really right. You know, there's people that are like that, right? You don't want to be in that camp. Uh, so in unconsciously incompetent, uh, relying on my own experience, my own opinion, while ignoring plain truth. Paul is painting the picture of a person who's extremely confident and extremely wrong. I don't want to be there. So where do your opinions come from? Where does your faith belief come from? If it's coming from somewhere other than here, I want to be really, really careful. If you're tying a verse from here and a verse from here and a verse from here and a verse from here, even from this book, adding two and two and coming up with five and a quarter, okay, I want to be really careful with that too. It is so important to contextualize the Bible, to read it, 
straight through when you read it, to read one book before you start another, so that I don't, I'm not guilty of what some might do that we would call proof texting. I, I garner an opinion, and then I prop it up with isolated verses from here and there. Be so careful. By the way, you know one of the things I love about this guy that's wearing the OU shirt down here today? He teaches us the whole truth when he's teaching. He, he doesn't, this is, you know, this is the word of Paul. This is the word of God. I love that. I love that our church is committed to getting it right. How do you know your belief is true? It can't be based on just my experience and just my opinion. All right. Let's, let's, let's go on. Somebody read verse 19. I'll get us to the third question. They have lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Okay. The idea here is, and I want to do this carefully, are you, in fact, reliant on the self? Not on yourself, but the self is the idea. The question is here against the idea, the warning is against people who present themselves as deeply spiritual, but they actually don't have a relationship with God, certainly don't have a relationship with Jesus. Um, The idea here is uh, a person who um, may say to you or uh, in so many words make you feel, oh, my faith is better than your faith. And yet you begin to wonder if they have a relationship with God at all. Now, they're detached from Christ, not connected to Jesus. You remember reading about this last week when we read in John 15 about abiding in Christ and the danger that he gives in not being grafted in to the vine. Now, okay, so how can we tell if we're connected into Christ or maybe not. I think, I think one, um, one definition of it, one, uh, maybe, a, maybe a better word here, is one portrait of it, um, of being connected into Christ, is found in that list of fruit in Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. Would somebody go there and read that in just a second? Thank you, Laura. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. Now, what you, I want you to think of when, as Laura is reading these nine fruit is really there nine aspects of one fruit, okay? It doesn't say, it doesn't say fruits, plural. It says fruit. Uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You know, a good, a good thing might be to do today as you're kind of prepping for church or something to read 1 Corinthians 12. And as you read it, it's going to talk about the importance of all the members of the body. Nobody's more important than anybody else. And then at the very end of 12, uh, Paul says, let me show you a more excellent way. And he begins with describing then in chapter 13, love. In an older translation, Laura, I don't know what translation you're reading from. That was beautiful. What is it? Living, new living. New living in LT. Um, 
in, an, in older translations or even some um, older uh, contemporary translations, it will begin, Galatians 5, with, with, for the fruit of the Spirit is love. And then it gives eight more. All right. So what I, I've begun to think about that is really that the, um, the barometer of whether or not I'm grafted into Jesus, the barometer of whether or not I am abiding in Christ is the fruit of the Spirit. If, if you were to look at, take a look at what Jesus looks like, how he lived when he walked on the planet, and who he is now, you would see these nine fruit lived out in perfect harmony. But it all begins with the fruit of the Spirit is love. What evidence can I look at in order to figure out if someone who claims spiritual leadership is really connected to Christ? What evidence can I look at in my own life to confirm that I am honestly connected to Christ? It's going to have something to do with the, is the fruit being born out in your life. Tim Keller says it this way. You're only mature. You're only as mature as the least mature distinctive on that list. I don't like that. You're only mature as the least uh, mature distinctive on that list. So if you look at the nine for me, it might be patience. It might, who knows, but self-control, whatever. But the idea is the fruit of the Spirit is love. There's your barometer. There's what Jesus looked like. There's what he still looks like. And there's what he values. Wayne? I believe that self-control was last because it's the most important to remember. Yeah. That leave that lasting memory of self-control because you can do all those others. You know, it's, it's not just an add-on, is it? But I'm going to still contend that the description that Paul gives in Galatians 5 that's consistent with what we're talking about today is he says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. The rest of those things are going to follow suit. Now, fourth question, most important question. You ready? Are you fully reliant on Jesus? I, um, I realize there's a, there's a reality here that we've got to kind of deal with. Paul's friends are encouraged to reflect on their faith and what it's built on. And he says, if it's built on a mixture of a whole bunch of things, then you need to boil it down to one thing. Built only on Christ. Occasionally, I'll have somebody that just knows I've got to have the latest book. And I buy books. I even read them. All right? But it's interesting how this is the latest, greatest, this is the best thing I've ever read. The Lord's going to change your life by reading this book. And it rarely happens except with this book. Uh, you know? Because I know that whoever is talking in here is going to point me to Jesus. So important. How do you know you're fully and completely reliant on Jesus Christ and not some rule or ritual or experience or other person? How do you know that... Um, um, I am not in some kind of a lukewarm, divided faith because that just won't work. Well, 
Can I read from John 14? And uh, it says that Jesus says this, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him. For he dwelleth with you, and he shall be with you. And the Holy Ghost, I'm, this is not in here, but it's a scripture that says, the Holy Ghost will teach you all things and bring everything to your remembrance. I think that's in 16, Nadine, because 14 and 16, he talks about similar things. By the way, one of the things that Nadine brings up here that's so important is you notice that if it's in red, I can take it to the bank. Mm -hmm. And that what she just read from John 14 is all in red. In my Bible, uh, you know, on the, on the spine of my Bible, it says words of Christ in red. It's so important. So when Peter says to them, over in chapter 2 of Acts, Peter's going to preach this first great sermon on the, on the day of Pentecost. It makes you wonder if he's really prepared for this or if the Holy Spirit just took control of his tongue. I kind of think of the, it might have been more of the second. Because who, who knew that you know, 10,000 people were going to show up at church that day, right? On the first day of the church. Of the church. Peter says to them, uh, they said, the, the narrator, Dr. Luke says, uh, they were cut to the heart after they hear, heard his sermon. And they said, what shall we do, brothers? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. There was no magic formula. Uh, in, in fact, even repent and be baptized wasn't intended ever to be a formula. It was the idea that I need a change of life. Uh, Romans 12 is going to say, I need a change of thought. Uh, for those who were in that place, who came from all over the world, who believed in God of the Old Testament and were presented Jesus Christ as being ful the fulfillment of the, the Old Testament and one of the Trinity with the Father, who had given his life for them, when that was presented to them, they had to change their mind from an old system of belief to a new one. Uh, in Romans 12, it's going to say, uh, you, you need to be changed by the renewing of your mind. I've got to change my thought. So if I've got my thoughts on any other system, um, Miss Teresa, I'm going, to, I'm going to get over, and this is not in the notes, and you know that's, I've got to be, I've got to be careful when I, when I get out of the notes. The difference in what you guys do on Thursday night, and some, um, I've met thousands of 12-steppers here over the years who have, whose lives have been kind of preserved and changed through the 12 steps. Um, Nadine, I had somebody in the family once say to me about a person, well, they just need a dose of the Holy Spirit. And I said, no, they probably need a good 12-step group. <laughs> but the truth is, so many I've met, thousands over the years, who have, who have not been all that interested in Jesus as long as they're in a 12-step group. I love what you're doing on Thursday night because it's Christ-centered. That's this church. So, I've got to change my mind. The word repent literally means to change your mind. Uh, 
it doesn't mean they set up a huge confessional booth and people spilled their guts on all the rotten things they'd done. It means they just shifted their thinking from believing Jesus was something else to believing that he was the answer. So, and be baptized? Well, this cosmic shift that took place was evidenced, followed through on, by water baptism. I think it's very interesting that um, in some places, I was in, um, I was in Sal- Southern California when I was on staff here uh, visiting Saddleback Church, and they had a little courtyard right outside that you could see from the sanctuary where they had a fountain and a pool, and they did baptisms after every service in case people wanted to follow through right then. I'm not necessarily sure that that's got to happen exactly that way. I want to be sure that you understand your baptism, because it's not baptism that saves you. But why wouldn't you want to say? Why wouldn't you want to put the T-shirt on and say, I have decided to follow Jesus? That's the thought. So, Laura. What you said about the mind. He said, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. It takes a change of mind, Nadine. It's got to be a change of mind. Laura. You know, Christ said he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And I truly believe the fulfillment of the law is at the cross. Yep. Where we keep our focus on that first word, love, in that list. <coughs> right. That, and all the others will fall into place. He never said be perfect at this. He said you're mature as you follow me. Every day you're more mature. Every day you're more If I'm complete. following him, yeah. I'm going to be mature. Yeah, he doesn't hold us to everything we've done wrong. I read a story this week about a professor that gave a final exam. And at the end of the timed test, he says to the students, okay, I want everybody to put your pencils down, turn in your tests, put them in a stack on my desk. And one student uh, was still just furiously writing after time was called. And uh, uh, the late student... Um, kind of finishes his answer to whatever he's writing on and approaches then way later the prof's desk and the professor just simply says, you failed. You didn't put your pencil down when I said to put your pencil down. And uh, so indignant, the late student said, do you know who I am? And the prof kind of looked at him quizzically, and he said to him uh, a little more boldly, a little more strongly, do you know who I am? And the professor basically said, frankly, I don't know, and I don't care. So the student placed his test in the middle of the stack and skipped out of class. (laughs) Can I tell you? There will be a final exam. Uh, I'm not sure what's, and by the way, we're all going to have to face it. And I'm not sure what that's going to be. I'll tell you what one person that I really trust has said. Rick Warren has said this. There will be a final exam, and on it there will be two questions. I find this intriguing. God will say to you, what did you do with my son? And he'll say, what did you do with your time? Uh, maybe um, he will say, what did you do with my son? And did you love? I find that really palatable. 
And I'm preparing every day to take that exam. Will you go with me? By the way, I've just got to say this to you. If what, anything we've talked about today um, uh, has made you recognize, you know what? I'm not sure I'm there. Uh, I'm not sure I'm, I'm ready yet to fully trust in Christ, or maybe I've just never done that. There are about a dozen people in here or more who would love to coach you through making that decision. It's the best thing you'll ever do. I've seen it time and time and time again when a person will say, no, I don't believe that. No, I don't believe that. No, I don't believe that. I can't believe you're trying to teach that. And they, I will get them to the point where they accept Jesus by faith. And the next week they'll say, I see it now. Make the leap. Take the step of faith. You'll never be sorry you did. God bless you. We're gonna, we'll pick it up in Colossians 3 next week. All right? Prepare for your final. All right? I'll see you. Guys on Facebook, it's wonderful to be with you. I wish I could see you all. Bless you.